about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the privilege we have of coming to your word this morning. We ask that as we do, you would speak to us and that we might have ears that are willing to to listen and hear what you have to say so that our hearts and lives might be transformed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been travelling through the book of Deuteronomy and we come now to the last chapters in Deuteronomy. Ah... There was meant to be a picture up there, but there's no picture up there. Okay, so basically what happens is a bit like two bookends. If you think of this bookend as chapters 1 to 3, then you think of all the laws and all the things that we've been discussing all the way through in the middle. Then you come to the end and it's chapters 31 to 34. Now in these chapters over here, what we hear is Moses speaking to Joshua and the people but to Joshua, and planning and starting to think about the future by looking at the past. So they talk about all the things that have happened in the past and and he's reiterating how the people of Israel have come out of Exodus, all that sort of thing. When you get to this end, what we're starting to think about is we're just about to launch into the Promised Land. And so this end is a bit more like succession planning. Basically what is happening is Moses is planning to hand over to Joshua and he's getting him prepared to hand over to Joshua at this point. Now I've done a little bit of succession planning, not for myself, for others. Um, I've been coaching a guy in New York um, who's had a network of congregations. I haven't been visiting New York to to coach him, I've just been online. Um, And he's had a network of congregations He's got to a point in his life where he said, I need to move on. And so we've been talking about how does he do that? And it's extremely difficult, actually, because he's invested his life in these congregations, in the leaders that are there. And now he's got to somehow entangle himself from all that and let those leaders make decisions and get on with the job. It's a complicated thing to do. And that's what's happening here with Moses as he passes on to Joshua. It's a complicated and difficult thing that he's trying to achieve. One of the other challenges he has is as he looks into the promised land, there are battles ahead. It's going to not be very easy. And so somehow he's got to inspire Joshua and the people who are gathered there about how to go into the new land. And so he's looking forward and he's going to say to him, be strong and courageous. And so this morning... What I want to do is think about four things. First of all, uh, what's the basis of the confidence that he has? How you shape confidence, how you lose confidence, and how you regain confidence. So we're going to look at the passage in those four different ways. What's the basis of confidence that uh, Joshua should have as Moses speaks with him? Well, Come with me uh, to verse 7 of chapter 30. What you'll discover... Sorry, chapter 31. Is that the first basis for confidence that Joshua is to have is because of what God has done in the past. 
Verse 7, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the presence of all of Israel, be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it amongst them as their inheritance. All throughout the book we've seen that God has been faithful to his people. God has been faithful to his promises, and the very fact that they're at the cusp of entering into the promised land is because of God's standing by them. Last week we talked about the fact that as they wandered around the wilderness, God provided shoes and clothes and, and housing for them. God provided food for them. God has been looking after them. God managed to make, help them get out of Egypt and away from the Pharaoh. God has been faithful to his promises, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And as they look into the future, the basis for their confidence is this, that God has called them into being, placed them at this moment in time, and he has been faithful all those years. Secondly, they should have confidence because God is going to be with them. They can count on his unfailing presence. So in verse 8 we read, The Lord himself goes before you and he will be with you He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The God who has been faithful in the past and has done all those things, shown his faithfulness, is also going to be present with them into the future, no matter what they face and where they go. So that they can be strong and courageous. Now, it's also true for us Christians, isn't it? We see this writ large in Jesus' death and resurrection. We see the faithfulness of God in pursuing us as Jesus dies on the cross. And we see the promise and the hope and the understanding of our future in Jesus' resurrection. And so that should give us confidence to be strong and courageous. Now, I know for some Christians at the moment, there's a sense of not being a bit frightened about all the things that are taking place around us in our world. But the point is, actually, God is with us. He's been with us. He's demonstrated that in so many different ways. It's a time to be strong and courageous, to lift our heads and say, actually, God knows what's going on. He's got the bigger picture in mind. He knows how we fit into that picture. He knows what's going on. So be strong and courageous, just like Joshua. That's the basis of the confidence. It's not confidence in ourselves or what we can do or the way we should go about things. It's a confidence in what God is doing and the way he operates throughout history and throughout time. That's one thing to understand that, but how do you continue to shape that confidence? How, does Joshua, how is Joshua instructed in terms of shaping that confidence? So in verse 9, we read how that happens. Moses writes down the law and he gives it to the Levitical priests and to the elders of Israel. What that simply means is that he writes down all the words that we've been reading through over the last few weeks and he gives them to the leaders of their community, both the religious leaders and the other leaders who were there. And then Moses commands them to read those laws. In verse 12, for example, we see that he's called to assemble the people. It includes 
women, children, foreigners residing in your towns, everybody. There's no discrimination here. Everybody is to hear these words, to understand these words, to come to live these words. Because it goes on and say, says, follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord as long as you live in the land, as, as you're crossing over into Jordan. Now, of course, Moses, as he speaks with Joshua, and more importantly, God, understands that what we listen to, what we read, what we think about, actually shapes us. So if you've been spending all your time on Facebook, that will shape the way you think. If you spend all your time in a particular workplace thinking in a particular way, that will shape how you approach life. Of course, in the midst of that, leaders shape you. Who you gather with together regularly shapes you. What laws are in place actually shape you as well. Because laws, if you think about it, shape a society by empowering and enabling the underlying worldviews. That's what laws do. They're meant to be established so that they enforce particular ideas and worldviews. They give shape. And that's what's been happening in Deuteronomy. The people have been given shape as they've come together, as the laws have been handed down, as they're asked to behave in certain ways, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, and soul and mind, and to love their neighbours as themselves, they have been dis- that's been described for them. And so they are to shape their society and the way they live according to those laws. Now, given it's important to understand what those laws are, let's just take, think about them for a moment and think about how, whether this is possible to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14, what we discover, actually, is that these laws are pretty clear. Now I'm commanding you this day, it's not too difficult or beyond your reach. He's speaking about these words and what God has to say. It's not up in heaven so that you don't have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it uh, to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it um, so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. The point, of course, is that the word of God is near them. It can be in their hearts. It can be in their mouths as they come together and hear it read, as they learn it together, as God's people together. And that's one of the things that uh, we, we, we will say constantly. Yes, sometimes we need to grapple with the word of God, but it's clear. It speaks to us. In this instance, it means actually the Israelites have no excuse. Um, If they want to know what the word of God is, it's there for them. They can understand it. There's no excuse. It's very clear. It ought to make a difference to the way they handle themselves and their society. And of course, this coming together, this shaping, this hearing of God's word is important to any community. And we see that reflected in some of Paul's words as he's speaking about succession himself. In verse 10 of Ephesians 6, he begins this way as he thinks about the future. 
he says, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. You can hear the words of be strong and courageous as you face the future together. And then in his instructions, he talks about putting on the armour of God. He talks about putting on the armour so that they can stand firm, the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness. He talks about uh, the go- feet with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the flaming, um, flaming arrows and uh, sorry, the shield that's used to defend those, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Now, if you've been around churches for a very long time, like I have, you will remember pretty embarrassing skits um, that included those kinds of things where they used to dress people up up the front and if you happened to be the unlucky child, you would end up wearing all this armour in front of everybody. Wearing that physical armour is not obviously the intention But what's so interesting about this is as the people of Israel are entering into the promised land, they've got a physical fight on their hand. And Joshua and Moses are trying to prepare them for that physical fight. Here Paul is reminding us our fight's not going to be exactly the same as that. It's actually going to be more about a spiritual fight. And yet we still need to get prepared for battle. We need to put on these different things. And that happens, actually, as we come under God's word, as we understand God's word together, as we meet together and encourage one another and build one another up and help each other, as we remember what God has been doing for us, as we gain confidence in what the word of God has to say. Now, one of the most precious gifts I've ever had in life is to be a father. Just love being a father. I just think it's the best thing in the world. And if you're a father, you're in the business of succession planning. From the moment your child is born, you're in the business of succession planning. And what I want to suggest to you is that if you're a father who's a Christian father, your job is to help your son and daughter Put on the armour to learn what it means to wear the armour, to spend time investing in the fact that they're wearing this armour of truth and righteousness and peace and faith, salvation, the sword of the spirit. Now the challenge on this Father's Day is this. That's not only taught, it's also caught. The truth is, the way you behave, what you do, even when you're not speaking, says volumes about what's important to you. So you can tell if a father is particularly into cricket because you'll speak to their son or their daughter and they'll be mad about cricket. You can tell if the father or the son... Sorry, you can tell if the son or the daughter is interested in cycling... Because, well, pretty often the father is interested in those things. Now, of course, there's differences there, but the reality is fathers have a huge impact on their sons and daughters. And the way you live your life can be examined. And so if what becomes important to you is 
everything but the life of church together, the life of meeting together, of coming unto God's word, then actually that's what will bear fruit as well. Can't count the number of conversations I've had with parents, because I used to be a youth minister, um, of teenagers who are tearing their hair out because their kids are not involved in the life of the church and what's going on. And as we've discussed things, it's become quite evident that that hasn't been their particular pattern either. And they haven't made sacrifices and dedicated themselves to meeting with God's people. They're surprised. It's like, well, actually, it's caught and taught. The way you live matters. Now, just a word for us more generally, the truth is that a church is a bit like a family. And we're all called to help each other put on our armour. So our younger people need older people helping with that. We need each other in doing those things. And that's why Moses is saying this is important to assemble the people so that they hear these things and in the community come together and understand what's going on. In, in my day, gee, I'm sounding like an old man today, aren't I? But in my day, it was really, really frequent to attend church twice on a Sunday. It's just a done thing. You kind of devoted Sundays to being together with your family. We've been doing some thinking and some research. Um, in fact, it's not me. Mike Hasty has been doing. He's really keen to come and join us. He's our new assistant minister. He's planning to come. He's just so keen. He's not going to come coming until October, but he's already talking to me. I think I've talked to him every week for the last three weeks about his coming and joining us. Now, he's not our saviour. Just kind of set expectations there because sometimes we feel like he is. But no, he's not. Um, he will come and serve us. But one of the interesting things he's done is done some research on, on how we gather. And on average, this is going to sound a bit harsh, but, you know, on average, if we take on average across our congregation, uh, every second week is our consistent pattern. Now, that means that some people are attending much more than that and some people attending much less than that. Um, that is very hard to form a community where you gather together and build each other up and actually put on the armour of God because what that actually means is that if you're missing one week, then you might have missed someone for three or four weeks because they didn't turn up on exactly the same weeks as you did. And it's almost impossible to sow into each other's lives in that way. Now, of course, we'd love to see that change and improve and for each of us to commit ourselves to doing this. And we understand, this is not a guilt trip, we understand that there are reasons that people don't come, and good reasons. But the truth is, what's said is important. It shapes us. What you devote your time to shapes us. We will shape each other as God speaks to us through each other. And so I'm going to encourage you to continue to think about what does that actually mean. I know for us, for me as a father, that sometimes meant sacrifices, giving things up. Sometimes it meant sacrifices for my kids, which was really even harder. I remember when our kids were young, um, they really, one of them really wanted to play soccer. And all of a sudden, all the soccer matches started to be on Sunday mornings when we went to church. 
we had to make a really hard decision because we, we wanted to be part of it. We wanted to be part of that community. And unfortunately, our decision in the end was, actually, we're going to church. Not unfortunately. That was a decision we made. But it required sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying we got it perfect by any means. But it is worth being intentional because it's caught and taught. And that's how you shape confidence. That's how you help people become strong and courageous. How do you lose your confidence? That's how you maintain your confidence. How do you lose it? Well, you see what's going to take place in Deuteronomy uh, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joseph and present, uh, sorry, Joshua and present yourself at the tent of meeting, and then I'll commission him. It sounds like a beautiful moment. God's going to come, Moses, Joshua, succession planning at its best. It'll be a moment of handover. The baton will be passed over. There'll be a moment of celebration. Yes, this is so good. But listen to what actually happens. God turns up. Joseph turns up. Moses turns up. Why do I keep saying Joseph? Joshua turns up. And the Lord says to Moses in verse 16, You are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods, uh, to the land which they're entering. They'll forsake me and break the covenant I made to them, and in that day I'll become angry with them and forsake them. I'll hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. And there will be many disasters, and they'll turn in their wickedness to other gods. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Moses at this particular point? He's wandered through the desert for 40 years, leading this obstinate people. He's managed to get them out of Egypt. He's done everything he could to make the succession plan work. He's invested in people's lives. He's spoken to them. And then God says to him, it's going to be a total disaster. And then yet, he says, be strong and courageous. What is going on? What's happening? Well, the point, of course, is that our hearts are very fickle. And it's so easy to get sidetracked. There's a book um, put out by a guy called Jacob Needleman, and it was a book called Why Can't We Be Good? Now, he wasn't a religious person in any shape or form. Um, he just noticed, in, as he was studying people in social philosophy, that basically people held deep values and beliefs, but didn't always live out those deep values and beliefs. Um, he depicts the human individual, individual human as being uh, someone who knows what is good, yet remains mysteriously helpless um, in adopting ethical, moral and religious ideas that are bequeathed to them. He, he was mystified. How come it is that we have these values? Now, sometimes I say to people, um, I've been meeting with some people recently who are exploring um, what Jesus means, and I said to them, you know, it's a bit like this. You know when you put a, if you put a digital recorder around your neck for a whole day, and you recorded yourself for a whole day, and then you listen to the recording at the end of the day and ask yourself, have I actually lived up to my own expectations on that recording? I reckon 99% of the time, no, 100% of the time, we would find out that actually 
we haven't lived up even to our own standards, let alone anybody else's. We have this capability of understanding, of knowing something, but then living completely differently. And I certainly know that's my experience of life. And the difficulty is our hearts. Our hearts seek out things and we fall in love with things and we think they're reasonable and then our emotions kind of follow that and then we start to act on those things and so our heart starts to affect the way that we live and what we do and, and, and we can't seem to control those things. Now, of course, that's important to remember in dealing with each other. We're all facing the same issues and we have... So we need to be gracious with one another because sometimes we find ourselves down those paths. But essentially the problem is we turn away from God and turn to other gods. And that's how we can lose confidence because when we're not placing our trust in God, we can't be strong and courageous because those other things will not actually deliver In the end, they leave us with fear and without hope. So the question, final question I have for you this morning is, what can we do to regain this kind of confidence? How does that actually work? How can we be strong and courageous? Well, the surprising answer that Moses gives is a song. Our musicians will be pretty happy about this. Singing gets a big Guernsey in this passage. Verse 19. Now write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and make them sing it so that they may be a witness for me against them. Uh, It's a pretty interesting song. If you just flip over in your Bible, you'll see what the kind of song it is. It basically says how great God is and how absolutely appalling Israel is. I don't know what tune it was was sung to, but it's a pretty terrible song. It's just a constant reminder of how Israel fails, how people fail, and how good and gracious God has been in all this time. But Moses dutifully writes down the song, presents it to his people, and then in verse 23, the Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun, be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promise on oath for myself. And then in verse 30, And Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. You see, I think the thing is, in many ways, Jacob Needleman was only half right. He could see that we weren't living according to our own morals and values and our own way of thinking, but he still had hope. He was looking for a way to say, how can we change that? What can we do? How can we be more consistent? But the song, as it's sung to the people of Israel, and it looks at the faithfulness of God, is a constant reminder that actually we cannot live up to God's expectations, let alone our own. And so therefore we are in desperate need. We need help. We can't be strong and courageous on our own. We can't face the future by ourselves. What's interesting is at the end of this song, in chapter 32, we get a hint that there might be hope in some other way. 
See there in verse 43? Rejoice you nations with his people. So it's not only including the people of Israel, it's the nations. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and make atonement for his land and his people. What that foreshadows is that God will provide a way forward. He will ensure that something is done so that a new song can be sung. A new way of seeing things can be embraced. And we see that beautifully unpacked for us in Revelation chapter 5. John is weeping in this particular vision because there's no one worthy, no one who's been able to live up to the standards that God's called them to live, let alone their own standards. No one worthy to open the scrolls. And then one of the elders says to him, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll of the seven seas. Of course, it's speaking about Jesus. And I saw the lamb looking as he'd been slain, standing there at the center of the throne. And listen to this. There's a new song, a great song. And the song goes like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain and your blood and with your blood you purchased your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language people and nation You have made them into be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign upon the earth Then I looked and saw the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times upon 10,000, and they encircled the throne of the living creatures and elders. And in a loud voice they said, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. What's happening at that moment is there's a recognition that we cannot sing this song unless Jesus sings it for us. Jesus stands in our place because we fail. Jesus stands and says, I'll make atonement. I will deal with the fact that you can't live up to your own standards. And I will deal with the fact that you cannot live up to God's standards. And I'll do that by dying in your place on the cross. And gathered around the throne... There will be people from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And they will be singing a new song, a beautiful new song, a song that we can sing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. You see, it lifts our eyes from ourselves. And it reminds us what God has done on our behalf. And I want to suggest to you this morning, to the extent that we allow Jesus to put that new song in our hearts, is the extent to which we were part of his succession plan. The extent to which we can be strong and courageous. Because he's the one who puts a new song in our hearts. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, you're a good and kind God. And you are so gracious towards us because we are so lost. 
and yet you so desire to put a new song in our hearts to form us and to shape us and to make us your people. You know how frail and broken we are, and yet you love us. And so, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.